You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Good to see everyone this morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we will be as we continue in our series, The Real Jesus. Uh, It's a series where we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount, the only perfect sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus himself. And verse by verse, we're just trying to discover the real Jesus uh, because the religious Jesus, the Jesus of our head, he is not alive. He is dead and he's useless. He can't help us at all. But the real Jesus is alive and he is life transforming. And so we want to meet him. We want to walk with him. We want to know him more intimately. And so as we walk through this sermon, we come to Matthew chapter 5. It's on page 810 if you have an ESV study Bible, or not just study Bible, but just ESV Bible. Um, and if you don't ha- own a Bible, we would love to, to bless you with a copy of God's Word. You can grab one of our ESV Bibles on the uh, welcome table when you walk through the door there in the, uh, the lobby area. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 21, and we'll read down to verse 26. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Will you pray for me as I pray for you, Father? We just come to you once again, and we just want to recognize that that these words are active and living, and they're sharper than a two-edged sword. As we read them, Father, it's just as powerful as if you were standing here today speaking them. But they're just words on a page apart from your Spirit illuminating the truths in our hearts. And so would you do right now what only you can do through the power of your Spirit for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. How many of you in here have ever had one of those moments where at the end of it, you're kind of scratching your head and you're saying, uh, what just happened here? Anybody ever had those moments? Yeah. Okay. Several of you. I've had a lot of those moments, especially in my days, uh, BC, right before Christ. And uh, when, uh, one of those moments that really struck me this past week that, that came to mind as I was preparing my sermon was the time that I was 18 years old, I'm not proud of this moment, but it's a true story, a time where I was actually on Interstate 55, actually on the side of Interstate 55, as cars were zooming by, ready to fight my best friend. And and you see, what had happened was this. We had stopped at a gas station, and we had uh, got some snack foods, and I had just grabbed what I think is the second greatest snack food of all time, next to the Cosmic Brownie. Uh, I grabbed a Hostess Snowball. Anybody in here agree that Hostess Snowballs are one of the greatest snack foods? We got a few of you, the rest of you. It's okay to be wrong. This is a safe place to bring your wrongness, and uh, we're cool with that. You can stay as long as you want, grow at God's timing, not ours. I was eating a, a, a snowball. I was about to start eating the snowball, and, and they're just amazing. They're just this chocolate-covered, coconut, creamy goodness. And as I was about to eat it, 
my, my friend, who clearly is totally depraved, um, behind me decides it'd be funny to try to knock the, the, the snowball out of my hand as I go to take a bite. And so I go to take a bite, and he just slaps my hand. It hits me in the face, falls in my lap. All of my friends die laughing, uh, but I was not laughing. I was not happy about it. And so I pull over on the interstate. I get out of my car, and I walk around, and I begin to yell at my friend and try to call him out of the truck to fight me. Now, fortunately, he did not get out. He was twice my size and actually ended up being an MMA fighter, so he would have destroyed me. But I was so angry. If I could have got one punch on him, I would have felt vindicated, right? And I yelled and I hollered, and eventually my friends talked me down, and I realized how silly this really is and and how dumb it must look to everyone. And so I walked back around into my truck and began to drive home. And here were the emotions that I experienced. I experienced embarrassment, uh, for one, um, being mad over something like that, but two, fear. Because I remember being afraid of the guy that I saw standing there on Interstate 55 that was fighting mad over something so stupid. Now, now here's the deal. God saved me two years later, and by his grace, guess what? I've not once been fighting mad over a cupcake since that time. And so that's his sanctification in my life. But here's what I can't say. Though I've never been angry over a cupcake since that time, there have been times that I have been angry. Several times I've been angry, and and here's the deal. Many times in the anger that I've experienced since the time that God saved me 11 years ago, my anger has not been justified. It is not. And I know I'm a pastor, and some of you, you've grown up thinking pastors maybe are supposed to be super spiritual and and, and have less sin in their lives than anybody else. But uh, I can tell you, as well as Ryan, who's been in ministry, we've got Josh here from East Tennessee who's been in ministry, Luke, and any others, pastors have just as much sin that they struggle with as you do. We really do. We're in this journey with you. And, and I think if, if we can just be honest this morning, I think we can all agree that I'm not the only one who struggles with getting angry at someone about something right? every now and then. And many times our anger is not really justified. I don't know what it may be for some of you. Maybe you experience anger today and it's over the fact that, that your spouse does something that, that you don't think he or she should do. Or maybe you get angry because your kids don't respect you and they won't listen and they're going to make you late for the 930 again. Right? Maybe you get angry because you didn't get picked for something you thought you should have got picked for. Or maybe you get mad because an MC leader or a pastor or someone lets you down and you're just hanging on to that anger. Or maybe, you know, some of you in here who are Cubs fans, you have to get angry because you live around all these crazy Cardinal fans that are bringing up Cardinal stuff in your face. I don't know what it may be. But don't we get mad about just some ridiculous stuff sometimes, if we can just be honest. We all get angry from time to time. And you see... Here's the deal. For some of us, it's really clear to see when you're angry because you're an external processor. You're the kind of person that when you're angry, we can tell. Everybody can tell because you look mad at the world. You're the kind of person that, right, if someone, you know, pulls out in front of you and you get mad, you're going to be the guy that's like punching the horn, you know, maybe yelling or screaming or whatever else, right? You are an external processor. But some of you, the, the anger is not so easy to detect because you process your anger internally. You're just as angry as a person that processes it externally, but, but you keep it inside of you. And so you're not the one that screams and hollers or, or is just cranky and irritable all the time, but, but you're the person that maybe whenever you see somebody that makes you mad, you don't blow up, but you clam up. And you look and you say, okay, I see how it is. And you just kind of in your heart say, well, excuse me for a second, while I just file you away, am I never forgive you file? 
you know. And I'm just going to, I'm never going to say anything to anybody else about it, but, but trust me, I'll remember this moment and what you did to me. And, and here's the problem, whether you blow up or you clam up, because anger seems to be so commonplace, don't we just kind of eventually begin to say, ah, you know, it's not a great thing, but is it really that big of a deal? I mean, don't we all get angry? And what the real Jesus comes on the scene and actually says to us today is actually, yes, your anger is a huge deal. It's a massive problem. Because what Jesus says is this, is that whenever you have anger in your heart, even if you never act on it, if you don't learn to kill that anger, it's going to eventually kill someone else or kill you. That's how big of a deal this is. Jesus says, if you look with me again in verse 21, he starts here and he says, You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus is talking to some religious people here that clearly would have heard the sixth commandment. They would have been very aware of it. Yes, God said, thou shalt not murder. And they probably would have felt good about themselves because they would say, hey, we've never physically murdered anybody. So not only, Jesus, have we heard of this commandment, we've obeyed it. it, it things have been great. right? But, but here's what we discover about the real Jesus and what he's about to show us again is Jesus, he's not really that concerned about behavior modification. He's much more concerned with heart transformation. He's much more concerned with you being changed from the inside out. And the reason why is because Jesus has told us, he says it in Matthew 15, 19, from out of your heart comes what? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, faultness, uh, false witness, slander. It's in your heart that's the problem. And some of you need to hear that today when it comes to anger. You think, well, the reason I get angry is because people cause my anger. No, nobody causes your anger. They can occasion your anger, but they don't cause it. Anger is already inside of your heart. And Jesus says, this is what I want to get to. And so he's talking to these Pharisees, these religious leaders who are saying, we've never murdered anybody. Look how good we are. And Jesus drops a bomb on them with this next verse, verse 22. He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but listen to this. Oh man, harsh words. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whew. Jesus looks and he says, hey Pharisees, hey, hey religious people. Hey, those of you who feel good because you've never murdered. Look, whenever God gave you this commandment, thou shalt not murder. It's not like he was saying, you know what, guys, actually, look, you're going to get mad every now and then. You're going to get angry, but just don't kill anybody, all right? That, that's not what God was really trying to get at here. And some of you, you've heard this kind of advice from your friends or maybe even therapists that you've paid money. You know, you get mad at somebody, you get mad at a spouse or a friend, and what's some of the advice you get? Hey, you know, just don't act on that anger. Instead, rather than yelling at your spouse, just yell into a pillow, right? Or, or rather than punching somebody, just punch that pillow over and over and over and get that anger out of you. And we think, oh yeah, that's good advice. And Jesus says, no, that's terrible advice. That's, that's, that's terrible because you're never really dealing with the issue that is in your heart. You're not really dealing with, with the main thing that I am concerned about here. And just a little side note, by the way, parents, how often are we, when it comes to disciplining our children, more concerned about the behavior modification than the heart transformation? I, I know that whenever my daughter punches my son, right, that's the world that I live in, uh, like my, my, my temptation is, is to go to her and be like, Nora, 
did you punch Wyatt? She'd be like, yeah. Be like, should you have punched Wyatt? No. Okay, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm like, parent of the, the year award. You know, like I just really accomplished something great. What did I do? Not much of anything. I didn't get to her heart, which is what's causing the issues. And I know that she's a little over two, but we can start young with beginning to model this for them. So it's not so weird and awkward when all of a sudden they're 16 and like, now we're going to talk about your heart. You know, it's like, but we, but we don't do this. We focus so much in our parenting and in our church on behavior modification. But Jesus says, it's not about what happens on the outside. If you've actually been angry inside of your heart, what does he say you're guilty of here? Murder. He says, in God's court, you're just as guilty as murder as someone who has physically murdered somebody. So Jesus here really just blows the mind of the religious people who would have been listening. I mean, think about it. He's talking to the religious people who are law-abiding citizens. They do a bunch of good stuff, and they would never dream of murdering somebody. In fact, these are the people who would look down on murderers. And what does Jesus do? He says, if you've had anger in your heart, I'm grouping you in with those murderers that you look down on. He just drops a bomb on us, doesn't he? Now, now here's a question that we have to ask before we go any further. Is all anger sinful? Is it always sinful to be angry? That's a good question that we should be asking, right? Is all anger sinful? And the answer to that question is, of course not. I mean, was Jesus not angry at times? In Mark 5, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees get, get mad at him for healing someone on the Sabbath, and, and Jesus gets mad at them. Uh, in Matthew 21, I think is where it is, Jesus walks into his temple, and he says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And he gets angry, and he begins to turn tables over. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul actually commands us at times, Christians, he says it's actually sinful to not be angry sometimes. As Christians, we should be angry. But the things we should be angry about are, are things like injustice. We should be angry about evil. We should be angry about the destruction that sin brings about in, in families' lives. But one way that you know that it's a righteous anger is this. Listen, if it's a righteous anger, do you know what it'll lead you to doing? It'll lead you, rather than doing something bad, it will lead you to doing something good. If it's a righteous anger, rather than you taking life from people, you will seek to give life. Think about an abortion. You know, uh, when it comes to abortions, so often we get angry about those things, right? Because we say, man, they're murdering, they're taking an innocent life. The way you can know if that's a righteous anger is you're not going to go stand on a street corner and yell at them how they're going to hell, and you're going to begin to pick it with a sign, all these kind of things. But if it's a righteous anger, you'll say, I want to do something about this to save lives. I, I want to take maybe some of these ladies in, and I want to begin to counsel with them and encourage them, and, and maybe even find a place to, to adopt the children. It's going to lead you to bringing life, not death, into the situation. The kind of anger that Jesus is condemning here is the anger where we are angry for selfish reasons and lead us to selfish actions. It's an anger where, listen, we care more about the fact that someone just sinned against our kingdom than the fact they sinned against God's kingdom. That's the anger that he is condemning here. He says this is the anger that is like murder in the eyes of God. It's the anger that Paul says 
is incredibly destructive. And why is it destructive? What does Paul say in Ephesians 4, 6? He says, if you leave this anger in your heart, do you know what you're actually doing? Think about this. You're giving the enemy a foothold. The enemy that Jesus said in John 10, 10 has come to kill, steal, and destroy. You are actually opening up the door into your home and saying, come kill, come steal, come destroy me and my family. Because I'm going to hang on to this anger. And you know it's destructive. How many of you who have held anger in your heart towards your spouse? How much cuddle time do you get? How intimate is your marriage? For those of you who have anger in your home, I mean, how happy, how joyful is your house? My experience is, is those who don't deal with anger in my six years of counseling and and ten years in ministry, is when people don't deal with anger, relationships disintegrate. You suck the life out of yourself and everybody else around. Jesus says anger is incredibly destructive. And when is it most destructive? What does he say in verse 22? It's when you actually begin to open your mouth out of anger. What does he say in verse 22? He says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. Now, now, what is it with the you fool example that Jesus gives here? Doesn't that seem like a silly example? I mean, because no one in our culture walks around when they're angry and says, you fool, right? Like, we, we just don't do that. And if somebody did, it probably wouldn't offend us. But, but in this culture, and this culture is a very derogatory statement. In this culture, it would be like me saying, you're an idiot. You are a nobody. You're a nothing. You're a moron is what you are. If fool was a term that was meant to tear you down. It was meant to belittle you. And let's just think about this. Let's just be honest with ourselves. We might not go around calling people fools, but do we not at times belittle people and cut them down with our words, whether it's to their face or behind their back? Do we not? And some of us, we don't even try to hide it. It's like, we'll just jab them, bam! Like, I want you to know I want to hurt you with my words. But, but most of us, most of us don't do that. Why? Because we're too spiritual to do that. We're too smart. So what do we do? How do we package our insults? With sarcasm. As a joke. Just joking. You know, or if you're really crafty with your tongue, you will wrap your insult in a compliment. I, I remember whenever I was a, a pastor of, a, of another church and... and I was, uh, I was a college pastor, and so I, I didn't preach very often, but the pastor that did all the preaching, I was 21 years old, was out of town. He said, Jared, I'm going to let you preach. And I was so nervous. It's a pretty big church, and uh, a lot of people, like we had like eight retired ministers in the church. And, and uh, man, I worked so hard on that sermon, and man, I worked on it, and I worked on it. I was so excited to preach it, and I got it there, and I began to preach, and, and felt pretty good about it. And at the end of the, uh, the, the service, um, it's a Southern Baptist church, and so you do go stand, you shake hands, you know, it's what you do. There's nothing against that, I shake hands here. But I'm sitting there, and I'm shaking hands, and, and, and of course I'm wondering as people are going through, like, who's going to give me the flu, uh, you know, because I'm a, I'm a germaphobe. I've told you that, pray for me, I'm, I'm a lot better. Um, but I'm sitting there shaking hands, and, and, and most everybody's giving me a compliment. And you have those wonderful senior saints that, you know they don't mean it, but it feels so good. They're coming up, and they're like, you're going to be the next Billy Graham. And you're like, thank you so much. And you feel so good, and they're encouraging you. 
But I had this one lady come through, and she was a retired English teacher in her late 70s. And she says to me, you know, for a boy with such little education, you did a good job. <laughs> like, you little old lady, you know, like, sweetheart. Uh, man, what do you think I remember the rest of that day? The compliments? No, I remember that one insult. And the next time I preached, her head, like everybody else's head was normal. Her head was this big. It's like I know she's just sitting there judging me and critiquing me and my English and, and all of this stuff. And, 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 and man, it was just it was something that bugged me for such a long time. Why is that? Because words are powerful. They're powerful. And think, I've been in a fight once and I lost. <laughs> if that's a surprise to anybody. And you know what I discovered after that fight? You know what I realized besides the fact that a man my size should never fight fair? I discovered this. I discovered that my wounds were healed in about three or four days. Okay? But what about whenever someone speaks an insult to you? Though the words fly into the air and they disappear in a couple minutes, how long does that wound last? Does it not sometimes last for an incredibly long time? And unfortunately, because we often don't deal with it, sometimes it'll last a lifetime. And it'll rob us of our joy. And it'll rob us of the life that Christ wants us to experience. Guys, listen. Your words are so incredibly powerful. They have the the ability to give life or death. That's why husbands, listen. You need to watch the way you talk to your wives. God did not put her into your arms so you could murder her heart. He gave you a wife to build her up with love and admiration and encouragement. Parents, watch how we talk to our children. Do not provoke them to anger in our anger. Church family, brothers and sisters, I know you guys. I I know you, many of you personally. I know that you would never want to wound anybody intentionally in this church. But think about how you talk. Is your speech seasoned with grace and humility and love and mercy? Jesus says, in your insults, in your straight jabs or your backhanded compliments, they're both incredibly serious. He says that when you give them, he says, it is like you're taking the life of the people that you're speaking them into. Anger is a big deal to God, and how we speak is a huge deal. He says, when you're angry and you speak out of that anger, it is as if you are guilty of murder before God. Anger is a massive deal to the Father. And that's why Jesus goes on and he says what he says in verse 23. He's going to switch it on at first. He's talking about our anger towards others. But he says, anger is such a big deal. Look what he says in verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, What do we do, Jesus? You leave your gift there before the altar and you go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Jesus says your anger or or that anger in general is such a big deal. Even if you're not angry at somebody, if you know someone is angry at you and you have not done anything about it yet, literally, you get up and you go and you do something about it right now. That's crazy. That means that if we're in here and we're taking notes and we're raising our hands and we're singing songs or whatever, and the Holy Spirit brings to mind someone who is angry at you, Jesus says for you to not do anything about it but sit there and continue to worship, that makes you a hypocrite. 
His anger is a huge deal. It's so big that we need to do something about it right now. You say, well, what if I, what if I ticked this person off like a year ago? Yeah, Jesus says you get up and you go and you do something about it if you haven't. Well, what if it was not my fault? Jesus says, that's okay. You get up and you go and you do something about it. You seek to make reconciliation. No matter how long ago it was, no matter if it was your fault or not, Jesus says, get up and we actually leave the worship service and we seek to go be reconciled to those that we've made angry. And then he's just going to keep on. He's not going to let the pressure off. He goes on and he ends in verse 24 or 25. And he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him. Or going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus loves you so much and he loves his creation. Listen, he loves this church so much that he says, You need to make this a top priority. Before this thing blows up and brings about a bunch of death and destruction, you need to do something about it. Today, he says. You want to know the real Jesus? You want to follow him? The real Jesus is about reconciliation. That's at the heart of the gospel, is reconciliation. There's no room here for division. There's no room for just saying, I'm okay with them being far off and being stuck in their sin. Jesus loves life. And that's what this passage is about. He wants us to experience life. The real Jesus, we've talked about it before, he's not primarily about laws. He's primarily about life. He doesn't stand in opposition to the Scripture. He doesn't compete with it. He completes the Scripture. He completes all of the Old Testament and all the law, which is given to us to help give us the life he's created us to experience. And so the question is this morning, what do we do about this anger issue? What do we do about this? What do we do? How do we go from being life takers to being life givers? Because that's what we all want, isn't it? We all want to give life. We all want people to enjoy our company. I hope we do. We want people to enjoy God, don't we? And how are they going to enjoy God through us if they don't enjoy us? If we're not giving them life, how are they going to see God is the life giver? So how do we, what do we do with this anger issue? And let me give you just three practical things, okay? For those of you that deal with anger like me, Here's three things practically that we need to do today, okay? One is if you want to deal with your anger, you need to acknowledge the root cause of your anger. In James chapter 4, verse 1, James says, What's causing quarrels and fights among you? What's causing quarrels and fights among you? You would think he could have said a million different things. Well, he's a terrible communicator, or you guys are just on different pages, or what's causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil, evil desires that war within you? The, the word that, that James uses here for evil desire could actually also be considered idolatrous desire. We have said before, as one author says, that our hearts are like idol factories. We're always tempted to worship creation over the creator. We're all tempted to worship these false idols, believing they will give us the life that we were created to experience. And we've said before here at Fellowship that there are four root idols, just four, that all of us in here today are tempted to worship. That we're tempted to give our allegiance to. And here are the four root idols. And all of us in here are tempted to worship and bow down at the altar to one of these idols. The first root idol is that of approval. The second one is comfort. 
The third one is control, and the fourth one is power. Let me, let me break those down for you, okay? You've got approval, you've got power, you've got comfort, and you've got control. Now, it's important that you figure out which idol it is that you're worshiping, because depending on which idol you're longing for, which evil desire you have will depend on why you get angry. Okay, so you ready for this? If you are an approval person, if that's your evil desire, is that you want... Basically, what, it, what that means is you want praise from people more than you want God to be praised. Your approval of others, if other people approve of you, great job, you look awesome, great work, like, ha, ah, like, that's what gets me going, right? And, and so, if you're anger, if you're an approval person, your anger is stemmed from what? When people criticize you, when they don't like your ideas, when people don't give you the credit for, for all of your hard work and say, man, you're awesome. Amazing job. That's where your anger comes from, if you're an approval person. What about for those of us that are, that are power people, which is the one I think I struggle with the most? Power is this, is that you find your significance in your accomplishments. I think I'm good because I've done some good stuff in my life, and I find my worth in what I do. And so where does my anger come from is when I think that you don't get it like I get it. You're not as good as me. And so that's where my anger comes from. Or when you don't recognize my accomplishments. That's where anger comes from for those that struggle with power. What about for those who struggle with comfort? Where you're someone who says, I want to eliminate suffering and pain at all costs. I want to make sure I live a life of ease. So when do you get angry? When people begin to put you out. When people begin to try to pull you beyond your comfort zone and say, do this. And it begins to actually be something that stretches you. You get angry at people that begin to ask that of you. What about control? For those of you that struggle with control, if that's your evil desire, you are someone that says, I got to have my hands around every single issue. I got to dot every I and cross every T. And if I can't, I'll freak out. And so for you, anger comes from, of course, other people trying to control your life and telling you what to do and what not to do. That's whenever you begin to get angry. Do you see? Do you see how these evil desires, depending on which one is your heart idol, causes the anger and they're all different? And because Jesus cares more about your heart transformation than your behavior modification, you have to today, if you're going to uproot anger, is to identify which is the root cause of your anger. The second thing is this. After you identify the root cause, is to confess that sin to God. Confess the root sin to God. And think about how much more powerful this is than just generally confessing anger. What's more powerful for me to say... Father, I confess to you that I was mad at my brother today. Help me with that. Is that more powerful or is it more powerful for me to say, Father, I confess to you today that I wanted worship in that moment more than I wanted you to be worshipped. And that's why I got mad at my brother. I, I, I realize, Father, the reason that I'm angry, the reason that I'm so bent out of shape is because someone's trying to stretch me out of my comfort zone. Father, help me to believe that there is more joy found in Christ than in my comforts. That's what we're called to do, to confess that. And then third and finally, I would say this, and this is so incredibly important. And this is such a big piece that I believe that many of us are missing. Is if you are going to beat your sin, you need to be asking for God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. To fill you with the Holy Spirit. Some of you are walking powerless right now against your sin. Even as I mention this right now, you feel hopeless. Like, I can't do this. I can't. You're right. You cannot, in your own power, defeat your anger. But listen, God has promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit for each of you. 
for each of you and for me. And here's what happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. When you ask God, fill me with your power, with your spirit, here's what will begin to happen. You will go from being an irritable, frustrated, judgmental, pushy, moody, grouchy, defensive, blunt, harsh, and impatient person to living a life marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Which is what? If you're filled with the Spirit, how do we know we're filled with the Spirit? You ready? The Bible says this is what marks our life. And does this mark your life? Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's how you know you're walking filled with the Spirit. And here's how you walk with these fruits. Just full. Who, doesn't, who doesn't want these things? Do you not, who in here would say, I don't want that life. I'll take grouchy all day long. We all want this, and it's a free gift to us, the power of the Spirit. And how does the Spirit help us experience these fruits? Because one of the most beautiful things the Spirit does for us is He reminds us of the gospel. And He makes the gospel alive in your heart. Some of you intellectually believe the gospel, but is it explosively alive in your heart? If it is not, we need to ask the Spirit to make it alive in our hearts. We need to ask the Spirit to come and fill us and to say, please, Spirit, make this truth real to me. That because of my sin, I declared war on God. A God that could crush me. And what does the gospel say? Rather than God crushing us, he said, I'm coming to end the war. Not by killing you, but by making peace with my enemies through the cross of Christ. What an amazing truth. Think about how that would shape us today that Christ came and lived a perfect life we couldn't live. He came and rather than getting angry on the cross and firing back, He said, Father, forgive them. And He went and He took our penalty. He took our punishment reserved for us. And as we celebrate last week and every week, He rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and conquering hell. Now, if you believe that, rather than tasting God's fury, you can taste God's forgiveness. And how can we, if we have tasted God's forgiveness, not extend forgiveness to others? Do you believe that your sin against God is worse than anybody else's sin against you? If you do, and it is, and you know that God has forgiven you for your sin against him, how could you not forgive someone else of their sin against you? If God has spared his wrath towards us, how can we not now spare our wrath towards another? We need the gospel to be explosively alive in our hearts, which happens through the power of the Spirit. And then finally, some of you say, well, what about if I'm not angry at someone else, but someone else is mad at me? What do we do? Well, again, we need to be reminded of the gospel. Did God deserve for us to sin against him? Did he do something to us first? Absolutely not. We sinned against God and all he's ever done is what is good, right, and perfect. And yet despite the fact that we sinned against him, it's all on us. What did God do? How did he respond? He came in the form of Jesus and he pursued us. And he made reconciliation with his enemies. So that, listen, if that has happened in your life, we are to reproduce that in the life of others. By seeking to reconcile with them for their good and for God's glory. The way we deal with real anger is by knowing the real Jesus. And we, every single week, want to be reminded of the real Jesus through our singing, through our preaching, and through communion. 
Communion is a time where this week, as you come forward, I want you to be reminded that communion is there, the, the bread and the juice. It's reminding us that God has made reconciliation with his enemies through the perfect life and the death of Christ and through his resurrection. If you were here this morning and you are not a Christian, we want you to know there are are no closed doors to you really here in our church, but this is one area where we want you to know that partaking of communion, it's not something that that is going to benefit you in any way, shape, or form. Right? It's just bread and, and, and Welch's grape juice. And so we encourage you, rather than receiving communion, we encourage you to just give your life to Christ. To trust that no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it, that God wants to make peace with you today through Christ. You can know that peace. You can know that reconciliation. You can taste that forgiveness. You can be freed from the bondage that you have been experiencing. And then for those of us that are here that are a part of our church, we encourage you to come and taste and see that God is good through communion. And as always, we'll have our baskets there. If we worship through our giving, we want to receive from Christ and then we give back to him a portion of what he's blessed us with as well. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning and I want to pray. And we're going to worship through another song and then through communion. And I know that this is a tough message. This isn't a message where maybe some of you feel like you can just float out of here in joy and with peace. But I think what the Spirit wants to remind us of this morning is this. There is no reason why any of us can leave here this morning without feeling light and joy-filled. You can give up your anger today, right now, the power of the Spirit to God. And you can trust that there is forgiveness. And you can trust that He has given you His Holy Spirit to help you kill the flesh before it kills you. Would you just take a moment before we move and before we start shuffling around, and and would you just take a moment and listen to the Spirit? Ask Him, Holy Spirit, is there anger in my heart towards someone else? Why am I angry? Help me to understand what's going on in my heart. And ask Him through the power of His Spirit to help you uproot those evil desires and to replace them with the desire for the real Jesus. Believing that he wants to lead you in a true life that he's created you to experience. I want to encourage you to ask yourself this as well. Is there anybody else in this church family, specifically in my missional community, who's angry at me? Is there anybody that I've made angry? Maybe it's been my fault. Maybe it hasn't been my fault. Maybe they just misinterpreted something I've done. Father, how can I show them a picture of the gospel by reconciling with them just as you have done with me? Father, I thank you so much that though we were your enemies, though we were born objects of your wrath, that you spared your wrath towards us. I thank you, Jesus, that you are truthful with us and that you do step on our toes, but you don't leave us wounded. You don't leave us hurt. You don't leave us carrying guilt. You tell us to take our wounds and to take our guilt and to take all of our hurts to you. And you offer us true freedom and true peace and true reconciliation. I pray that for each person that's here Today, Father, I don't want people to walk out of here feeling guilt and condemnation. I want them to understand that because of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. That, God, you are not angry with them, that you are pleased with them, you are patient with them, you are merciful. And then through the power of your Spirit, I pray that you fill them up and help them to extend the same love and grace to others as you have extended to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.